Hey, what's going on, people? This is Donald Robinson, your co-host with the Black Codes Podcast, here with the intelligent and wise Savannah Bryant. Hi. We hope you're feeling well today. I am feeling pretty well. I don't usually day drink. That's not like a thing that I always do. Mm-hmm. But starting the day off with some vintage stout. So shout out to Off the Rocks. Um, the liquor store, that's the alcohol store that is nearby down here in Baltimore. They are increasing my palate here. So I've got this cherry barrel blossom. The bottle like looks old. It came in this box. So mm-hmm. Savannah, the box itself just looks really exquisite. Like for one beer, it's Imperial Smoked Porter with sea salt aged in bourbon barrels and cherry bitters barrels i didn't even know you could do all that to beer (laughs) in this box like look how fancy this is this is is a step up from sam adams isn't it (laughs) yes i feel like more advanced now i feel sophisticated Mm -hmm. right now yeah that bottle is cool this beer that you're drinking was Smoked. I don't really know much about the beer process, but bourbon barrels are involved, so that's cool. Yeah, and the pitcher has a lion and a bear in like a fighting stance on mm-hmm. one side, and then the other ones on the other side. It's pretty interesting. It's a strong flavor, but it's really good. Yeah, I have. I mean, this is a Sunday, and. We're not really going outside to do brunches, so in honor of Sunday fun day, I am drinking a rosé. It's cool, you know, it is what it is. It'll get the job done, for sure. Definitely did our own little makeshift brunch, mm-hmm. going to get the uh, sandwiches, and they they did something kind of ridiculous. So, I went to call in an order, and I was like, alright, I want to call in this egg sandwich, you know. And they're like, in order to be more safe and contactless, we're only going to take your order over the phone. I mean, over the Internet. And I'm like, bro, what's the difference between taking my (laughs) order over the phone and me giving you my card number versus me doing it online? Like, Mm -hmm. what are you touching? Yeah, I maybe there's a reason they have some explanation for that, but it doesn't make much sense. Yeah, that sounded clown. And I think that's like clown moment of the weekend. (laughs) But nonetheless, we got the sandwiches and we got the brews. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's brunch, just indoors without all of the the aura of brunch. Like brunch itself is like, it's like a culture. It's mm-hmm. like an aspect of culture. Yeah. Going out at 11, <laughs> 1 o'clock on a weekend to go eat and drink. Mm-hmm. And like there's this vibe to it that lunch on Wednesday afternoon just doesn't carry. Yeah, it's definitely, like, a fun way to enjoy the weekend because you don't really want to go out and party Sunday night if you work on Monday. But Sunday during the day, you know, it's like I could spend a few hours throwing some back, and then by the time Sunday night rolls around, I'll be sober and I can, like, decompress and prepare for the week, so... That's, like, a great scheme right there. All right, I'm going to drink till 2. I'm going to have a buzz till, like, 4. And then, all right, it's, like, 5 or 6. Let's let's get it together. 
that has got to be like the epitome of being 25. (laughs) So as we rock and roll today, I'm going to talk about an article of clothing that I wear for today. So right now, shout out to Central Catholic High School. I have my Central Catholic Ultimate Frisbee shorts on. So in Pittsburgh, PA, we have this high school, Central Catholic. Um, It's one of the more elite private schools in the area. And I will... I do, I coach Ultimate Frisbee, so I do a lot of their speed and strength work for their uh, winter season, preparing them for outdoor. Sad that they didn't get to have a season because of COVID, but um, that's what I'm wearing today. They actually got me some gear, so I actually coach high school track at a different high school, and I would wear their, that high school stuff, and they're like, oh, we got to get you some central gear. Yeah. Like, you can't be repping this other high school when you coach us. I'm like fair so they hooked me up with some gear and these shorts are actually really nice they're very comfortable and um kind of leading us into our episode today this find this this coaching opportunity found me in an interesting position being um a black male coaching and having you know a level of authority of a bunch of like 20 you know privileged white kids who you know for all intents and purposes they were cool kids but when we think about just myself, how many um, authority figures in my life have been black males um, at all, and then thinking about, wow, for a white person here in America, how many authority figures do they come across that are black? And even in my own business, finding myself in this position of authority, you know, telling white people what to do, and you mm-hmm. know, they pay me to tell them what to do, and the psychology of that. I think that's rather um, interesting in a sense of how often does that really happen to a, a young white male or even a white woman for that matter? And how does that affect them growing up when they never have had an authority figure that was black or any person of color? And then, you know, when they do, I almost feel like I'm doing some level of justice for the kids that I coach. Because, like, they're going to grow up and at least have had an experience with a black male presence who is, you know, guiding them and leading them, mentoring them, and being stern with them, which is something that I think in history, a lot of white people never had the opportunity to have a black presence being stern with them in a leadership role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes me think about a situation that happened when I was in high school, I think I was a junior, and I was working, I was doing stage crew for the spring play, which was state fair. And there were a few football players that were involved in this play. So at the time, my junior, my senior year, I worked as the student athletic trainer. So I worked with the football team and the basketball teams, and I would like tape wrists and tape ankles and any like little minor health related things I kind of I didn't manage the water boys but I kind of like oversaw them to a degree during the game um so I was around the football team I'm around the coaches I'm spending a lot of time with them during practice and away games so to me my 15 year old self I'm thinking I know these people (laughs) So one of the players, let's call him B3, was someone who I knew, I knew other people in his family, like his immediate family. So he's someone that I thought that I had a relatively 
good understanding of the type of person that he was and the way that he thought about certain things. And there was a day before rehearsal where B3 and another friend are in the car and they're kind of driving reckless. I don't remember if they were doing donuts or if they were just speeding and being stupid. I mean, they're teenagers with a car in an empty parking lot. Use your imagination. And one of the security officers came out of the school and yelled at them to stop. Mind you, I don't remember if it was a few weeks or a few months, but some during that academic school year, we had lost someone who was the same year as B3. A young black boy died in a car accident. Um, and it's always really sad to have a life so young taken. And so the security guard coming off of this yells at them for being idiots driving like doing whatever in this parking lot so they park the car it's whatever whatever they walk in go back to the actual rehearsal me thinking everything is like cool squash whatever that's done with I am walking down a hallway and B3 is in the middle of this hallway and his back is facing me so he's like looking at the other direction like another hallway in the other direction And as he's turning around and I'm walking up to him, he is on the phone and he says, I don't know who that nigger thinks he is. And as he says that, like our eyes meet. He follows that up with, oh, pardon my French, Savannah. And then says, no, ma, I like it'll be okay something to that effect so not only are you out here calling people niggers you're saying that to your mom with like comfort and ease like it's no big deal at all so he wraps up his conversation and we end up talking and he you know does the whole you know my best friends are black I'm not racist you Uh, know my you know my dad you know my mom you know it's not like that and I'm I think at the time trying to be giving because I had experienced racism um, secondhand, like just hearing it from other people. Like I, there were slowly becoming situations that are racism and looking back at it now, having more knowledge and understanding, I know that I went through some things earlier than this situation, but this was such a direct, me walking on someone that I thought I knew, I thought I knew their family as calling someone a nigger. Calling someone a nigger because they essentially he got out of line and tried to tell you what to do, even though it was for your safety, even though that is within his right to do because he is supposed to make sure anyone that's in the school building is, you know, safe. You have no business doing that in the parking lot on school grounds anyway. So this idea that he was being told what to do by this black man was like appalling to him, just mm-hmm. couldn't, couldn't believe it. And so when I talked to him, it's like, it's, I'm not even mad that you were mad that you got yelled at. It's the fact that he is a nigger because he yelled at you. Like, what is that about? That doesn't like, how'd you get there? 
Like you went from like ten to like eighteen hundred real yeah. quick. Yeah. <laughs> so and he said, you know, I understand. You're so right. Blah blah blah. And I don't want to seem like he didn't listen because I don't know. We never talked about it again. I did no follow up to ask him. I didn't tell any of his friends, but there were some of my friends that I told this to because I thought it was really important, especially as I started to recognize, oh, this is what racism actually looks like. Like these ideas that I had might not be present today, but they manifested in other ways. And I never, I never wanted to just completely blow his spot up because I didn't think that was fair because what if he did hear me and he did continue to have like black best friends like he still does to this day but that doesn't mean shit if the moment they try to check you now they're a nigger and I don't know what his personal relationships are like with his black friends so hopefully he's not doing that I hope he wasn't like going home after a fight calling them nigger up and down (laughs) but yeah that idea of like being told what to do, especially when there were, I had my first black teacher when I was in the second grade, it was a woman, Mrs. Payne, shout out to you. I had her husband in the eighth grade, Mr. Payne, RIP, shout out to you. I had Mrs. Gibson in the 10th grade, who I think the next year became a counselor, like the guidance counselor, and that was it. Those were the three black teachers that I had during my time in high school, in elementary school, in junior high. So there aren't that many black authoritative figures in in any way. So I know that that was probably off-putting for him. He wasn't used to it. Yeah, and in that respect of thinking about school and when you go through school, like for an audience listening, think about how many black teachers you've had Think about in, you know, any position of authority in your life, whether you played a sport, you were a part of a a band, you were a part of, I don't know, a club, and your advisors and the people that are guiding and leading you, like how many of them who had the power to tell you what to do, how many of them were black? And Mm -hmm. when you think about how that affects the psychology of someone growing up and their expectations and you know, how they just respect people because what it comes down to is you respect people that you're used to having, you know, that you're used to getting uh, guidance and authority from, Mm -hmm. and you don't respect those who don't give that to you. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, when you grow up and all of your authority figures are white, well, of course, you're going to hold some reverence for that. Mm -hmm. But then when you start getting authority from somebody else, you're like, Something goes off in your mind, and you're not actively thinking about it. Something goes off. Who the fuck are you? Yeah. <laughs> and in the context of America, who the fuck is this nigger? Yeah. Like, who the fuck told you you could tell me what to do, mm-hmm. even though I'm wrong, and even though your job is literally to tell me that I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of going into our topic, it goes um, into this level of respect in in another way of trying to understand how we find ourselves in this position because the part of the reason that you don't find black people in all these different levels of authority and yeah it's increasing in in their leadership roles is you know due to the legacy that's been established here 
of denying black people's access to those places, but also creating these stereotypes that literally hinder them from being able to get in these positions even when they're qualified. Mm -hmm. And so with our direct topic today talking about this notion of black men being savages and how that goes and blocks, you know, blocks us from even having access to certain spaces and the whole creation of how did America decide that black men were vicious and violent and not to be trusted? Where did that come from? So... (laughs) It definitely comes from um, needing to justify your actions. In needing to justify your actions, you have to, sometimes you get a bit creative with the ways in which you're going to do that. You're going to make that happen. And I think introing this by just saying like, First of all, we've all lied here and there. We've all like tried to scapegoat someone or put the blame on someone else to justify why the fuck we're doing what we're doing, even though we know what we're doing is wrong, even though we know blaming it on someone else is fucked up. Sometimes, a lot of times, uh, our survival trumps anyone else's situation which is unfortunate but that is a real thing that happens and I think this case in particular this idea of black men being aggressive savages that story that lie comes out of needing to justify the treatment so I wanted to have a little bit of fun with this because Me going through these um, stereotypes and articles, the common thing as I'm reading this shit is all of these are lies. (laughs) And that led me to Wiki Howl's How to Make a Lie Sound Convincing. Oh my, that definitely sounds like something that's on there. There's all these different Wiki Howl's. Mm -hmm. How to Make Cheesecake. Mm -hmm. With pictures. (laughs) <laughs> how to tie a knot mm-hmm. <laughs> how to convince 300 million plus americans that black men are not to be trusted the wiki how yeah so they basically um have divided how to lie how to make a lie sound convincing into two parts preparing to lie and being convincing so i think You and I, because we try to be objective and we try, I think, in order for you to understand how things get to where they end up, you do have to put yourself in everyone's shoes. So I want to go through this wiki how literally step by step and try to figure out how they were able to make this lie sound convincing because they don't have any actual like statistical data that black men are more aggressive, are prone to be rapists and savages. That was something that they just, someone came up with and they ran with it. And so 
I want to try to recreate their thought process in this, if that's all right with you. Let's roll with it. We're always good for a good game and a little bit of problem solving. Yeah. Okay. So step one is think about why you need to lie. So I think if I was a white man, why I would need to lie, like I mentioned earlier, is to be able to justify what the fuck I'm doing. Like, these niggas are acting out. I'm going to whip them. I'm going to separate them from their families. They don't have any feelings anyway. Like we talked about in the wet nursing episode, that this idea that um, black women could just take more physical pain or do, or do more physical labor because of childbirth and breastfeeding. It's like, it sounds like we, we know we need them to do this work. And we know we're not going to pay them. So how do we let the greater public, like, how do we get this off? We have to give them, we have to give everyone else that's important, a.k.a. white men, a reason to believe us. So because it's not like everyone immediately jumped on this bandwagon. It's not like every, like, one day, everyone woke up, every white person woke up in America and was like, yeah, these black people are savages. They are. Like, it was a communal thing that happened immediately, or it was a thought that they always had. That's not how that was. That was from, you know, that was a very planned attack. So. Yeah, and that takes a long time. So when you think about justifying, you know, we're going to take this back to slavery because that's where this starts. And you're trying to justify why you should physically force people to work for free and why you're going to take them, you know, across the ocean to do so. You have to get public opinion to sway your way. And, you know, part of a PR campaign, you have to paint an enemy. You have to paint a reason mm -hmm. for that. And even when you start looking at the earliest 20th century, 20th century or the late 19th century, and now, all right, they're free, like, but... There's this level of they run they run among us now, mm -hmm. and this whole villainizing that goes into a part of the prison complex of being able to create criminals to still work for free, mm -hmm. and trying to find every reason for the law to be broken, but in this sense of keeping separation with fear and mm -hmm. creating this fear mongering that these black men are endangerment to our society, they're an endangerment to our white women. And how that legacy carries through into, you know, the labor unions and the lack of letting black people into those things mm -hmm. for those fears in the 20s, 30s and 40s to even the reluctance to have a significant chunk of the American population not want the civil rights bill to be passed. Yeah. Or the people who hated on, you know, the different civil rights figures to now, you can sit there and watch um, a cop kill a man for eight minutes and 46 seconds because of their own alleged fears. You can sit there and go on YouTube and watch black people be shot yeah. because, oh, I feared for my life. Mm -hmm. And that is where that legacy comes from. Yeah, this lie. Think about why you need to lie. Well, that's why I need to lie. So step two is plan out the details of your story. How do you think that one went? How do you think they were like sitting around the table trying to plan out the details of how they're going to get this lie off and the details? I feel like sometimes what comes to mind is 
when you are transporting these slaves or when you're dealing with them, the you feel like you have this moral righteousness to do what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Or at least you're trying to convince yourself that you do. Right. And so when someone's being held captive to do something, most instincts are to fight back against that. Mm-hmm. And so you take this fighting back as, oh, you're violent. Oh, you're aggressive because you won't let me forcibly make you do something mm-hmm. that is not in your best interest to be done. And you can take that and basically play on that as a way to create this narrative of like, look how aggressive this person is. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, in a, in a situation like that, there's only a few people, I don't want to say a few people, there's only a certain percentage of people in any situation like that who are going to be the uprising type. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be another po- significant part of the population that's going to be willing to uprise with the right leadership. And there's going to be the more docile people. Mm-hmm. So you take those people who are more aggressive about it and you blow that up to be everybody's just violent and aggressive. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, part of when they're looking at how do we create this, it's look at that one person, look at those 10 people, mm-hmm. and then look how they incited those 50 other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, think about what that, what was the slave ship, the Armistad, the one mm-hmm. that they threw overboard, and, uh, well, they took over the ship, I'm sorry, and what goes into, you know, being able to have an uprising like that, they repaint that and repurpose it as, violence and aggression against Mm -hmm. our noble and god-given right Mm -hmm. to have them as slaves yeah when i think about planning out the details to this lie i think about like parts of the lie like honestly one of the things that they said was black men are wild aggressive keeping them in slavery uh allows for us to control them so they won't just be out here raping your wives and women we're talking to you so they won't rape you you know they won't come to your house and just rape you immediately that is why we need to have them enslaved for the protection for the good of for their own for their own well-being they need to be enslaved and it's kind of like well damn if black people are that aggressive and violent why didn't you leave them niggas in africa (laughs) Why did you find a more calm person to make into slaves? <laughs> so it just goes back to the fact that these lies, when you really break them down and just look at logic, they make they really don't make any sense. It's like they're contradictory with at, like what black people are being used for in terms of slavery and then just the things that they say to justify it. It's like, okay, you lost me there. But yeah, the next the next step according to wikipedia which is probably the best is start with the truth Ooh, start with the truth now i don't know i will start it by this there are a lot of light-skinned black people that are running around the americas that is not all from a love connection what you mean that them slaves and the slave owners they weren't like ooh. I think we're on equal playing field, and you're the one for me. Yeah, I don't think they were, like, having planned meetups, like, 5 o'clock behind the shed. Like, I don't think it was a mutual love affair. They didn't have, like, the little winks from across the field. Like, <laughs> hey there, I see you. You're looking good in that little, uh, on that horse with that cutoff. <laughs> hey, girl, you're looking good with that cotton on your back. 
Yeah, for real. So in terms of, especially in terms of um, black men being these raging rapists, I mean, they're coming from personal experience. Like they can talk about what it means to be an aggressor, sexualizing, sexually assaulting women to a T because they've spent however many years, specifically like only talking in America, because I should say, and maybe we should maybe put something at the front, because uh, we this rape is involved in this, and rape isn't funny in any context. It There should be no givings to rape. But starting the narrative that black men will rape white women any chance they get is just so insulting to not only black men, black women, and white women. And (laughs) it's one of those things where, you know, in terms of the lie, for the good of the lie, yes, it makes absolute sense. But in thinking about when when you have to reflect on these things, there are still questions that no (laughs) that that isn't a lie that's the truth like that's how well they've been able to get this lie off that people thoroughly believed it then and continue to believe it today all while not really shedding light to the magnitude of trauma and destruction white men laid on black women and black men and white women through their raping, their mass raping of black women. And when you look at that and you think about how many black women have been raped in that time, not even just looking at this occurrence now of a lot of babies popping up Mm -hmm. that were the slave master's child that he had with this black woman, but just in the rapes that happened for pleasure and how many rapes happened before a child was Mm -hmm. born and that kind of trauma and, you know, how you flip that and say, well, they would do that to us. Mm-hmm. And you know what? They do do that to us. And mm-hmm. first, it goes from this, in, you know, this thought that says, well, they would do that. And now it's like, oh, no, no, they do because, oh, that slave looked at my wife. Or mm-hmm. I caught my wife with that slave. Mm-hmm. And why would she willingly just sleep with him because he's a slave? So mm-hmm. he obviously raped her. And in order for this white woman who doesn't have a position of power with her husband, she would admit, oh, he raped me. Mm-hmm. I think there are, just within this idea of black of white men raping black women and all the problems that that creates, because that woman could have had a husband. And even if she doesn't, it's still wrong. But being a man and not being able to do anything when your wife is being sexually assaulted at any time this white dude feels like it, I can't imagine those feelings. Having that be your husband and he's not fucking you, but every other night he's going outside to rape someone. Like that also plays a role on you. However, that's something much larger, much bigger to unpacked and we're not going to do it justice by briefly talking about it but in terms of telling a lie being able to speak from experience like they got that 
they really explained it well because it's a lived experience for them. So bold as fuck. Yeah. So step four in how to tell a convincing lie is think about who will hear the lie. So as we mentioned, white women not having equality or much power they're kind of looked at as these soft delicate creatures that can't do much without the assistance of their white man so playing to that fear of this weakness of white women you won't stand a chance against this black savage lusty beast like there's no way you're going to be able to win so white men we need to protect our women those are the people that are hearing this story. Well, I, they're not the only people that are hearing this story, but that's who these stories are directed to, to instill fear into white men and white women about black, in particular, black men, and playing to the fragility of white women is a great way to do that in the 16, 17, 18, early 1900s. Yeah, and how that plays into... That, that plays a very heavy role into relations even long after slavery's over. Mm-hmm. Like the, how it's illegal to, how it was illegal to have interracial marriages, how it was, it still can be taboo to have relationships with white women or black men. Um, and it plays into these other aspects when you look at, you go to college, you go off to school, and you meet your, uh, you know, you're hanging out in your uh, physics class, and there's this white girl, and she's pretty cute, and she's looking at you, and you're like, oh, okay. And y'all mingle, and y'all vibe, like, whatever mm-hmm. it is about y'all, y'all click, and then y'all end up being serious, and oh, Thanksgiving break comes around. Oh, do you want to come home to Thanksgiving with my family? And he's like, all right, cool bet. Like, you know, if you, especially if you grew up kind of like, if he's just as a person not that apprehensive, like, all right, cool. And then there's that whole, well, my family might be kind of racist, or she brings him home and like it's mad awkward. And you know, a couple of days later, she gets chewed out, like, why would you bring this nigger in our house? Mm-hmm. Or, or even more subtly, so like, you know, what's his family about? Mm-hmm. What do you do? You, do, you, do you think he's like worthy? Like, I don't know how those conversations go because I'm just not in those houses. Mm-hmm. But that sense of why did you bring this black male <laughs> in our house? Mm-hmm. And is this like a or like the husband and wife that night have that conversation? Like, do you think like they're really in love, or is this a college fling? Because she's mm-hmm. eighteen, nineteen years. And she's just trying to piss me off. <laughs> yeah, and like the even notion of saying, "Oh, she's bringing a black man home to piss us off," mm-hmm. or even like you know my own parents. They had this, my mother and my grandmother still stand by this, you know, yeah, you know, cringe for the same reason it's cringe on the other side. Mm-hmm. Don't you bring no white woman home mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And this, but on their end, there's this notion of not even just fear of, you know, something goes wrong, your ass is grass, mm-hmm. but also their own sense of they wouldn't want you. Why would you want them? And how this lie carries this legacy through the next hundred plus years mm-hmm. that it still affects us now. Yeah, it Be- does. Because, there's, yeah, there's, you know, there's attraction and, you know, there's certain physical features that maybe you, people are into or not into. 
But there is this level of I'm not dating that person because they're white or they're black that literally roots from this fear that was Mm -hmm. created and all of the repercussions that come from it. Or I will date this person because they're white or black because of this shit that I've been told and I'm trying to see for myself what's up. And now that just becomes a fetish. Mm -hmm. Whereas like, actually, matter of fact, we know people from school who (laughs) had fetishes dating black men Mm -hmm. because of all these taboo things Mm -hmm. about them, whether it's for their favor or not. And and black men who will go out of their way, bend over backwards to date these white women, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes are like, oh, it's it's my own reparations. Mm -hmm. Or or it's to just, you know, (laughs) actually, that's often what it is. Or this level of, I want to go against the grain. And how the lie has made it in a way that interracial dating is going against the grain. Mm -hmm. Not in a sense that it's just not something that happens a lot, but it's literally going against social fabric. And social fabric is so ingrained that that holds weight. Like when you go out and you see a mixed race couple, listeners, you don't have to tell us. You just think to yourself what your immediate response is when you see a black woman with a white guy with a fucking, uh, with this little reverse bun up, or you see this white woman with this dreadlock guy and your immediate reaction, that just... It's the sting reaction, not the one that you thought through, but the first one. Yeah, it's like, huh. And we can leave it at that. So step four is, oh, no, we just talked about step four. Yes? Think about who. We're on step, step five. five. In our little romance lie. <laughs> well, partially. Rehearse your story. You have to rehearse your story in order to get a good lie off. Like, you just need to have it down. So, once I want to ask you, you're there with answers, with information. They rehearsed their story. They rehearsed it by uh, writing books, writing pamphlets, making movies, and imagery, and artwork, and advertisements. Maybe that's not the same as rehearse, as telling yourself, but rehearse in the sense of repetitive, repetitive telling or repetitive affirmation Mm. of what this lie is. Like, I need to just, (laughs) me rehearsing it, and trying to convince myself especially plays into the abundance of where this needs to come from, I think. I don't know how you feel about rehearse your story. What do you think that looks like? I think that is the constant replaying because at a certain level, it's not like, it may not always be super intentional every time it comes out. It's this is the trope that we're going with and... Everything that gets created comes from the foundation of that. Mm -hmm. And so because that's now the root story that these black men are savages and they will, you know, they're aggressive, they're violent, they'll rape our women. That gets played out in, you know, minstrel productions Mm -hmm. that happened in the 20th century. That gets played out in your advertisements when you think about your Aunt Jemima, which was like, you know, something that just got changed in 2020. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, you know what? This actually is not right. Um, 
and these various aspects of culture and media production that gets uh, that rehearsal happens as it just keeps getting played and played and played Mm -hmm. and i mean these are things that didn't really get aggressively changed until like the 90s um so it's not like this stuff died out in the 40s these things were played out continuously through the 40s through the 50s through the 60s and it took a really big cultural push in the 70s and 80s to Sometimes it was reclamation, other times it was going against it completely to where some of the more favorable things that we see that are trying to display equality, like Gillette's commercial. That happened in 2018 or 19. Like This reshifting of rehearsal is finally starting to get pushed I don't know anything about this Gillette commercial. So Gillette made this commercial and i'd have to pull it up but basically the commercial was this showing of equality it was i think it was a <laughs> okay. super bowl commercial actually mm-hmm. and it was making a very big push about equality and things like that um throughout the commercial with different uh, men being uh, black fathers different aspects i really don't remember all the specifics it just mm-hmm. has an emotional burning in my memory um so you know if you're listening to this go look up gillette super bowl commercial um, but it was something that got a lot of actual pushback <laughs> in mm-hmm. the media. There was a lot of like, you know, white people who were like, why is this being displayed? Why is this out there like that? Mm-hmm. Or there was, there was another brand that actually made a commercial like this last year. I don't remember what it was, but. So, I mean, there are plenty of instances where brands be it coming from a genuine place or because they know it will boost sales in a target to a target audience are trying to become more diverse and there's definitely an argument to be had at should we call out or talk negatively about a brand that's at least trying like does their intention matter but specifically to what you're saying in terms of outrage when seeing people of different races and ethnicities and large brands because white becomes like the default and it's like well if a white person's on it then it's for everyone if anyone else is on it then it's only for that specific group and i use gillette so why would you have all these black people on this commercial i can't relate I don't know if you're talking about the honeypot commercial. It was something that Target did. I think it was specific to Hulu, maybe, um, a black woman. It's a black-owned brand. And in the video, the owner is basically talking about being an inspiration mm-hmm. to uh, young black girls uh, to have someone to look up to. And white women were furious, like boycotted. We're going on different review oh, yeah. websites, leaving them, leaving her and the company one star specifically for that. But this isn't a conversation about media. So those are the five ways of how to prepare a lie. And even though we don't fuck with this lie, so we have negative things to say in terms of just following the five starter points. I mean, they're killing it. They're doing a great job. (laughs) They answered all of those points and had a plan. So they prepared for the lie. 
And the second part and how you make a lie more convincing is to actually be convincing. So their recommended way is one, tell your lie at the right time. So there are thoughts and actually there is a sociology professor by the name of Alan D. Grimshaw who has done extensive research on social conflict and violence, he actually mentions the most savage oppression of blacks by whites, whether expressed in rural lynchings or urban race riots, has taken place when blacks have refused or been perceived by whites as refusing to accept a subordinate or oppressed status. Basically, anytime black people make any strides in equality, that's when these this propaganda, these lies are coming in full force. Think of like birth of a nation. Think of like all this all the lynchings that are happening in the 60s. Think about the rise in like KKK membership when Obama got elected. Like these are strategic things when it seems like oh they're doing a bit too much. They're getting a bit too close to where we were at. Let's double down on this shit to put them back in their place because we're not having that. And even into today right now, the federal crackdown of federal troops on protesters mm-hmm. and the protests are about taking away lethal use of force from police, from unarmed citizens. But... About Birth of a Nation. People, this is not the Birth of a Nation movie you watched that came out a few years ago. With that Nat we're Turner? To. No, this is the 1915 This is the original Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation. That is the Birth of the Nation. Um, that movie has been talked about a lot, and maybe it's something we can revisit later, but I don't want to do a deep dive because it's uh, there's so much in it that I don't want to do a deep dive about that movie right now. What year did this movie come out? 1915. So, so it's considered a cinematic great because it's it's a silent movie. It happens very early in America's cinematic adventure. So it's looked at as one of the best, in terms of film, if you're watching it objectively, one of the best pieces of cinema that we have. And it's a historical movie. But the content is... Wild, yeah and so for our listeners take some time to just i mean if you can even stomach it watch some of the original 1915 birth of a nation it's in black and white um and it really plays on what we've been talking about in this so um take some time to you know pull your google out look that up because uh yeah, it's something I, else. I recommend the Wikipedia page also does a fine job at really explaining <laughs> what happens if you oh, don't yeah. want to sit there and watch it. Just do a quick Google like Donald mentioned. Wikipedia has all of the info that you need. But in terms of us doing a deep dive, not today. Maybe later. So the next point is don't look nervous, which... The irony is this. Don't look nervous. 
Don't we're let not, them see you sweat. We're not nervous. And just to ensure they don't see us sweat, we will. We have hoods to protect our faces when we're going to gallop around the city, <laughs> yank niggas out of their houses and string them up or burn crosses and just terrorize people. So I think that's funny. Like, you feel very strongly about these feelings. They don't, like, you can just straight up own up to it without hiding your face. And what that turns into when we talk about systemic racism, or we talk about the more underlying ways people go about enacting these things in, you know, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and in these last two decades, are ways that are not so overt that it would make you sweat or feel bad about yourself. It's carrying this lie now through subtle things. Oh, this urban kid, this Mm -hmm. underprivileged kid who's Mm -hmm. in this environment. And it carries this lie that this kid's going to be hostile. Yeah. Like there is a, like literally when you look at taking um, a kid and I had actually had a conversation with this woman. um, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about this for a second. So I had a conversation with this woman just a few weeks ago. We do the building that uh, I operate out of. We have this um, food giveaway program Mm -hmm. and that somebody else runs and she's a part of it. And we had this conversation about people describing youth in our neighborhood as underprivileged or these underserved kids in a way that she called intellectualizing the struggle. And what that act as I've been, I've been thinking about this for like two months now, three mm-hmm. months now, that conversation with her. And what that does is it actually still perpetuates this lie because there is this underpinning that this underprivileged and under mm-hmm. um, served black kid is going to carry this hostility mm-hmm. in this violent streak because he comes from this neighborhood this that has anger. violent. Yeah. And you bring him into this white space, he needs to be tamed or Mm -hmm. white people need to be prepared Mm -hmm. to be in his presence and that's still another way of carrying this that for sure you know as we talked about this now i'm like that conversation just kind of came full circle Mm -hmm. yeah that's (laughs) you're you're correct (laughs) um so the next step in being convincing is act apart and Hmm. Let me say this, because I don't like to stereotype people. However, if there's a person that has like a Blue Lives Matter flag on the back of a pickup truck and they step out with like work boots and jeans and dip like the tobacco dip and uh, like uh, a MAGA hat on, to me, you're acting the part. You are letting me know where you stand and what your feelings are and the arguments that will ensue on certain topics. So your belief system, you are putting that, you know, that's frontward facing. You're letting me know with the way that you put shit on places by the things that you wear. You're, I mean, you're living it through and through. So... Like I said, I don't like to stereotype people, but we all do have thoughts that run through our mind when you see someone like we're talking about, like the the 
thought that you see a black person walking down the street, there are people that will still to this day cross the street because they're uncomfortable and they're afraid. So you'd have these immediate reactions based on what people look like. And when I think about some of the white men and women, but but specifically men that I've come across that have let me know before I ever had any kind of conversation how they felt, I've met several of them. Hmm. Yeah, that's, um, you know, we actually ran into that yesterday. We were going to go get food, and we saw this guy pull out in his Blue Lives Matter shirt in front of the firehouse, and we're like, you know, unfortunately, it's stereotyping, but in the sense that when you look at discussions, you look at other types of podcasts, other discussion feeds online, and, you know, oftentimes, people who are defending this are very, you know, hostile to the idea of, how black people going about trying to make equal status or about you know themselves becoming the victims of this lie and making themselves now the victims of it because for some creating more equity is taking away from their privilege and it's interpreted as in being oppressed against Mm -hmm. and so that that creates its own branding and its own kind of pushback and structure. But as a way to, you know, be able to carry this, well, mm-hmm. that that carries its own message without them having to speak about it. Yeah, for sure. So the next tip is actually reciting your lie, telling your lie. And we kind of mentioned this in the, the rehearsal and the preparing of the lie. Um but they aren't the same thing practicing a lie and then actually telling people but in the sense of how i i guess i explain rehearsing in that way and and reciting it now i'm thinking about individuals going out and spewing their filth left and right um i don't know i don't really have a lot of conversations with a lot of white people these days I spent probably the past, maybe between 2014, 2013 to about 2017, really weeding through people that I was friends with on Facebook or other social media and kind of just getting rid of them because I'm not coming here to get pissed off. I am not on here to just kind of scroll and see what's going on, look at all the people that have kids and people's busted down um paper plate dinners like that's what i'm coming to facebook for i'm not coming here to get your dissertation on some shit that's based on complete bs so i've removed a lot of those people from my timeline so i just don't see a lot of those arguments anymore But because so much stuff has been happening in the world, especially during uh, COVID and us being quarantined, I can imagine that the lies that they're shooting off um, are of epic proportion. I can only imagine. The lie, it it becomes so subtle in how it's rehearsed because when you think about what's happened during this time, People are like, let's go do these things to end racism. Okay, white people are out here like, let's do these things to end racism. You get these, you know, overzealous 22-year-olds, 25-year-olds, 19-year-olds who are coming of age 
and they don't understand how this keeps going on. You know, they are of a generation who, largely compared to many other generations, are much more embracing of equity mm-hmm. and, you know, wanting things to be fair and even. You know, at this point in time, how I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this episode about, you know, black people being in these positions of authority, this is a generation of people that they look up to black people in a way that maybe other generations would not recognize. Yeah. When you think about, especially in entertainment and sports mm-hmm. and things like that. And, you know, you got LeBron James, who has an entire stance online. And he has a lot of followers. And a lot of those are, you know, 18-year-old white boys. Mm-hmm. And so they're coming of age and they're like, wait, what do you mean police brutality? What mm-hmm. do you mean this and that? And, you know, this lie carries through this the actual social strata now of what it means to, like how I mentioned before, being underprivileged and being in these, you know, poor neighborhoods, poor resources. And now this lie that's coming when we talk about people talking about defunding the police. And there mm-hmm. are people who are more aggressively talking about like abolishing the police. Right. And so the this now narrative of, well, if we get rid of it, those savages are going to like ruin the place. Even Donald Trump himself mm-hmm. talking about you know, them ruining the cities mm-hmm. and ruining America. And so that lie still perpetuates itself and still gets recited in these ways. So, you know, 100 years ago was very birth of a nation. These nigger savages are mm-hmm. going to rape us and they're going to be all violent and they're going to cause terror. And so in response, they go and just cause the terror up front. Right. And now you get these instances where they are fighting against basically people are recognizing this lie and maybe not in the way that we're describing it per se but they're seeing this and they're pushing back and those supporters of it which you know we have them in office Mm -hmm. are pushing back against this lie being brought to the light and um you know that is still a way that it's recited Mm and this especially in this particular notion when they talk about reallocating resources in neighborhoods from police departments who have balloon funding and you know you guess funny you get all that funding and yet some of these cops at the basic level still don't get paid shit i think that's really yeah. weird but yeah. you know reallocating these neighborhoods to be more like the suburbs because you don't have the savages in the suburbs although there was something i read about this woman getting a letter during like the beginning of these protests like don't you bring your black lives matters into oh, our upscale neighborhood because yeah. we want it to be upscale we'll call the cops on your ass yeah. and you better oh you better keep your husband and your sons in line mm-hmm. it was an interracial couple yeah mm-hmm. and that whole notion of how this still carries mm-hmm. itself through yeah so <laughs> yeah it's it's one you look at one thing and see that, oh, there are like 10 legs that grow from this one little seed. And we have to deal with all of, like we can't just deal with one of the legs. We'll still have nine issues. I wanna wrap this up with 10, 11, and 12, kind of combining them, because they all are kind of one thing. So. 10 is change the subject, 11 is back up your lie, and 12 is have a backup plan. Have a backup plan, changing the subject and backing up your lie almost always when confronted, when they have to get out of, you know, the corner they've blocked themselves in. What happens? Deflection onto what? Black on black crime. 
the myth and mystery in searching for what is black on black crime. Mm. When you hear that mm. and when you take that for face value, that literally just means, hey, you're black, so I want to commit crime on you, which. Yeah. <laughs> It's fucking laughable. Yeah, it makes, again, there's a recurring theme here, and the theme being this shit doesn't make any sense at all. Like, hey, you're black, like, all right, crime time. Yeah. (laughs) Like, that is the sole reason why we're lighting the neighborhood up, because you're black and because I'm black. (laughs) Meanwhile, all the statistics show that, first of all, when you racialize crime, Crime 90% happens against people that look just like you. In your community. And, well, America's so damn segregated that, well, white crime? That's like, what, 94% of white crime happens against other white people? Well, guess what? You're around all white people. You're not... What you, you know, at this point in time in our American you know, society, you live very segregated. Mm-hmm. And, well, black people, they're committing crimes against the people that look like them. You meet a lot of people in the hood, they don't know any white people other than people who work in some sort of program or something like mm-hmm. that. And even then, still not as many. I haven't met many friends who grew up like I didn't know a white person until I went to college. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in any social structure, you're going to find people who are going to commit crimes and... What are they going to do them against? You got to go out of your way to commit crime against a white person. And, you know, people missing the ball here that crimes happen in these neighborhoods because of poverty. And you're only calling it that as a way to deflect and title it. I have logged hundreds of hours watching true crime documentaries, and it's all white on white crime in in a, a variety of ways. Wives murdering husbands, husband murdering wives, children murdering parents, parents murdering children, parents torturing their children, cults, all types of wild shit have generally centered around around white people. And part of that is due to who we value, who we deem in, like their history is important, like the story is important. But the numbers, I mean, <laughs> the the scale of all the different types of crime-focused entertainment, a high portion of it is only talking about white-on-white crime. So there's that. And yet this lie still carries itself. Meanwhile, the truth shows in entertainment that we pay for. Mm-hmm. And even when now things are real crime not real crimes but like big national level crimes there's still white on black crimes yeah so that was my little bit about (laughs) me trying to understand just the the framework like the groundwork of these lies and this idea that black men are just innately and inherently more aggressive and they're sexual deviants and all of this other shit and that lie perpetrating that lie how it allows for the just the justification of slavery and the treatment of people that are now enslaved the torture the scapegoating and ultimately the murder of black people is justified because this lie is being hit through so many different mediums in so many different ways that it is subconsciously ingrained in 
even if we have an understanding of the judicial system, if we have if we have basically said, well, these aren't actually people the way that you and I are people. And in fact, they're not people in this way. Like they rape like maniacs. They're just aggressive. And that's why we had them enslaved and slavery ended. So now we need we need to terrorize them to keep them in check. And so that's why we have to we have to take a no uh, like a no-nonsense policy, the slightest inkling of a nigger getting out of place. We're coming in and we're putting them back into their rightful place. Think about all those kids who are in like the third grade getting suspended from school or, you know, they are a little hype and teachers just like on edge, just white teachers on edge because these third graders are just like real hype. And so you get kids getting suspended from school, getting arrested Mm -hmm. at the school as a consequence of all this. Mm -hmm. And how now there's this level of guilt that goes because when you carry a lie, you still know the truth. And the truth then still being your fear of if these people, if these black people were to have positions of power or to have true equality, would they you know, actually enact revenge or would we get what we deserved? And that fear of getting what white America deserves, that fear driving this lie home because you know that how this American society was brought about through slavery Mm -hmm. was so wrong and foul that it's like, yo, I'm scared as hell if they get power and they can, you know, enact revenge and even if we, we didn't want to, that's what's not even the MO that people tend to be on. Yeah. But that fear drives this lie to mm-hmm. keep going because you just don't want to see if that's true or not. Yeah, you don't. Especially when you know, well, that's, there's a, 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 recogn- a recognition of, I don't know, did I say that properly? <laughs> I don't know if I just made that up, like that phrasing Recogn- of that word. Recognition? Uh, recognizing recognition yes I just wanted to add a z in there for some reason (laughs) um of we treated y'all really shitty and we just don't want to feel that and so we're actually going to keep doubling down because we don't want to actually really get into the truth because that might be bad news for us and The way that I, the best way I think to close this out is to highlight two cases that I came across that are not related to um, anything direct, but just the attitude and the thought of the way that black men are. With these, there were two people that used that to their advantage. So, In 1994, Susan Smith, a white woman, claimed a black man kidnapped her children in a carjacking. Yes. Come to find out, she in fact killed her kids and ended up doing a 30-year life sentence. She's eligible for parole in 2024. So this was a huge case that happened in the early 90s. We were still but young babes at the time. So we, I like, I don't remember this. The other case I found was of Charles Stewart. He was a white man that claimed a black man 
um, forced himself into his car that he was in with his pregnant wife, Carol, and this black man made them drive to a different area. He robbed them, shot Carol in the head, shot Charles in the stomach, and fled the scene. But he fled the scene on foot and left Charles and Carol in the car. Like, he didn't tell them to get out, shoot them, take the car, and drive away. He robbed them, shot Carol in the head, shot Charles, and then left. And then Charles calls the police. Um, and that's how the ambulance get there and blah, blah, blah. The So I should preface this by saying this happens in Boston. So they find a man, a young man, a young black man, Willie Bennett, who supposedly fits the description that Stewart gave to the police, and they arrest him. Stewart picks him up out of the lineup, and I want to mention Boston because it's like, well, how, how, he, how could he have picked him out of the lineup? We've all seen enough police investigative shows where if you're trying to find a killer, especially like this man's husband, like at the time you're not probably thinking that this dude who's also been shot and has been in recovery is probably lying. A white woman was shot, a white woman that was pregnant and the baby dies also. We're gonna find this black man immediately. So they basically through the stop and frisk, they go through the black neighborhoods in Boston and are looking for this man that had the balls to do this. What ends up happening is Stewart's brother actually turned, he doesn't turn Charles Stewart in, but he confesses that it was actually Charles who killed Carol for her life insurance. And that same night, Charles ends up committing suicide. But I wanted to highlight these because these were two huge cases, one of which a woman kills her children, another, a man kills his wife and child, and they both immediately say it was a black man that did this to get the heat off of them because they knew it would work. And if it wasn't for um, Charles's brother, Willie Bennett probably would have done like actual time. And in the case of Susan Smith, I, I believe her, like someone else turned her in also. They, they never found anyone or I didn't see that they found anyone out whether they did and it was off the record. I don't know. I'm going to proceed to put my jaw back in line. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that lie that is pushed kind of reinforces being able, and, and those aren't isolated cases. There are a list of cases where black men in particular have been used as the scapegoat for a crime that someone else actually committed to someone close to them or just for shits and gigs. Think about the Emmett Till case, you know? These, you know, and those two cases are, I don't think, I don't know if they're as high profile as like Emmett Till's case. Like yeah. Emmett Till's case, you know, from conversations I've had with myself, we've, I've had this as a full-blown conversation with friends of mine, is like a heritage passed down case of young black men coming of age in puberty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our mothers warning us of the, the you know, the warning of going after white women in mm-hmm. the sense that this Emmett Till decided like, yo, we're gonna there's this white woman, she's kinda cute. To some extent I'm gonna say what's up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it turning into her claiming that he, you know, assaulted her and 
him getting dragged out and killed that same night. For this woman at 90-something years old, what was it, 2018, to go ahead and confess and say... I was actually lying, y'all. My bad. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> like, this man did not get to live the rest of his life. He died as a teenager. Mm-hmm. My bad. Yeah, sorry. I've had to live with that my entire life. I just wanted to get that off my chest. Woe to me. Whoa. But I recognize that I should come forward and tell the truth. So And that's someone what I'm doing. patched her on the fucking back. For someone that. did, for sure. You're so brave. You didn't have so to. The <laughs> oh, fuck out of here, lady. You're a surprise. And so in really wrapping this up, I do want to just highlight someone that was never with the shit. So Ida B. Wells. The bad bitch that she was, yes. and I'm saying that in the most respectful way, was calling people out left and right and did not care at all. And she has a paper in Memphis. She has an office, and she writes in this editorial, and I quote, Nobody in this section of the country believes the old threadbare lie that Negro men rape white women. If Southern men aren't careful, they will overreach themselves and public sentiment will have a reaction. A conclusion then be reached, which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. Basically meaning, specifically what happened, it was like eight black men had been lynched in a week for claims of having raped these different white women. And it's like, okay, y'all can think what you want about us being... Uh, these aggressive, sexually deviant men, whatever. But you're telling me eight men thought they were going to get a rape off? At some point, people are going to start questioning the women. Like, maybe this isn't rape. Maybe your woman want to get dicked down by a black man. Because, a wa- like, black men aren't going to keep risking their life for someone that is not interested in any way. Now, if they're walking down the street and little miss delilah smiles at them then yeah they might go and see what's up or maybe in their own way try to further that conversation but y'all keep saying rapes this and rapes that i am calling bullshit call bullshit and what subsequently happens is a group of white men burn her shit to the ground and she's exiled from memphis after that but she continues to get her bars off and saying y'all are full of shit and i'm not having it so shout out to you ida b wells definitely shout out you deserve so much recognition because you just did not care and said what you had to say at the end of the day, people, use your common sense Please. about what makes sense and know when the wool's getting pulled over your eyes. Because mm-hmm. my question that I want you to walk away with, what have black people actually done in American history that earns a brutish reputation? What have mm-hmm. black men actually done forwardly that earns a reputation of being a savage? Yeah. So... That's all we got for you today. I know that was a heavy one. Hopefully you learned what it means to make a lie convincing and prepare a lie. So some of y'all can get better at lying because you're really shit. And granted, (laughs) (laughs) granted, we ate apart their lies, but they've been able to convince a population of people that that shit is truth. 
like fake news, black on black crime, all of that stuff. So while we know that their lie doesn't logically make any sense, they still successfully were able to convince a bunch of people. So if nothing else, I am not condoning lying, but if you're going to do it, don't insult the person that you're lying to. Like at least try, try your best to connect the dots. And if nothing else, we gave you that. There you go, beautiful people. So take that home, you know, dwell on it, chew on it. Um, That is our episode for today. So it is hot. It is hot. It's time right now. It's definitely hot. And we look forward to turning the fans on. I have to make this drive back home, and I really don't feel like it. I'm totally supposed to meet up with my cousin, and this is, well, the time that I was supposed to be planning to leave. Yeah, you always are pretty ambitious with just timing. Like yesterday, like, oh, we can, like, start getting work done at 11. We didn't even get to my house till like, 2.30 or some shit. Like, it wasn't you know, that bad. Donald. We were one. We Donald. were just getting settled. We got here at, like, 12. One we did not we get settled. here at 12 because you went to the store. <laughs> I had clothes drying at my mom's house. It, nothing went according to plan. But you know what? You know, you got to roll with the punches. You got to so. roll with it, people. You got to be flexible. So, you know, this is part of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it still all got done. So, mm-hmm. hope you enjoyed these, uh, this episode here. Stay tuned. I want to make sure that you share this with a friend. Tell a friend about the lie. Tell a friend who sucks at lying. Our series on how to be a better liar, how to make it more convincing and prepare it better. And make sure you give us a review on uh, whatever platform you listen to this on. Check out our social media, The Black Codes. And, you know, tune in, subscribe, and uh, we'll see you here next time. Bye.